Hello and welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on September 15th, 2009. For this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Gerardo Reyes, who is with the Coalition of Amokali Workers. The Coalition of Amokali Workers is a community-based organization of mainly Latino, Mayan Indian, and Haitian immigrants working in low-wage jobs throughout the state of Florida. The CIW fights for a fair wage for the work that they do, more respect for the on the part of bosses and industries, better and cheaper housing, stronger laws and stronger enforcement against those who would violate workers' rights, the right to organize without fear of retaliation, and an end to indentured servitude in the fields. Gerardo Reyes, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Hi, thanks for the invitation. Let's start by talking about the state of labor rights for ag workers in Florida before your coalition was formed. Um, well, the coalition uh, has been struggling for many, many years, um, since 1983 and formerly 1985, uh, officially with a, uh, a little office. Um, and before that, I'm going to talk a little bit about what the history, what the history has been uh, in terms of agriculture, in terms of the, the agricultural uh, agricultural work. In in Imokali, Imokali is uh, a agricultural place. Um, it's been in the past like an agriculture agricultural reserve for the past decades, and. Um, the conditions that existed before the coalition was formed were situations of um, violence in the fields. It was uh, normal to hear about beatings in the fields. That's according to the legal aid services that uh, reported that every season they heard about five to seven cases uh, that were reported to them. Um, on on the years before the CAW, and there were they estimated that for every case there were at least like from um, seven to ten cases that were not being reported of, of abuse, like people being uh, bit in the fields um, or ver- verbally um, abused also, and um, the contractors would use to carry guns, uh, shoot them up in the air. To show the people who was in charge, and um, situations of robo uh, de cheques. I don't know how to say that. Check check theft. Uh, yes, the they were stealing the the checks of the workers. Yeah, um, and the the wages that have been stagnant since 1978 and, and most of the companies 42 45 cents which is what you receive now so the situation before the coalition started was a situation um, that was pretty pretty bad here in our community and that's why we started to organize um, one of the the incidents um, or one of the things that happened here in the community um, was that the coalition started to uh, 
it was formed by six members basically starting to talk about the problems that were happening happening in the everyday basis and they started to um talk to other workers they started to organize um and try to see the possibility of coming together and that's uh, how it happened when uh, the first time or the first general protest happened here in Imokali where over 3,000 workers were, were in strike for over a week um, in the parking lot. And that was in 1995. In 1996, there was an incident of violence where a worker was brutally beaten for the simple fact of stopping to drink water while working. And uh, when he asked for permission, uh, the, his, his uh, boss told him no. And uh, then he went to go anyways because it's not a question <laughs> if you're working in the field from the 90 degree 95 or 100 degree temperature um it's not a question of of if you can or not like you have to you have to drink water um so this worker was was beaten for that there was a march with over 500 workers that went to the contractor's house um and this house was basically the house of a contractor whose family was very famous among other contractors um, for being very violent. Um, this march uh, took place after the, that beating happened in the field, and uh, there was a declaration that beating one of us was beating assault, and that started to uh, change the situation that was the norm for so many years, so many uh, decades in the past. Approximately how many years was this going on? Um, the situation in Imokali? Yes. I mean, it's been... The, the way the food is being produced um, has so... If you see it from different angles, um, one of them could be that this is a industry that has been exploiting its workers um, since its inception um, here in the United States. Because in the past, there were the, the workers, African-American workers that were in the fields as slaves producing the food. Then uh, many years passed, and then there were some laws that were established, uh, like the National Labor Relations Act at the beginning of the 30s, I think in the mid-30s, the mid 1930. And this law uh, basically provides some protections and rights to workers in pretty much every industry, uh, with the exception of workers in the fields, and workers, uh, domestic workers, which happened to be African American. So it was an intention. Uh, there was a like very clear intention on the exclusion uh, to leave these communities outside uh, of the rights that others were entitled to. Um, that left the community um, with many like um, abuses going on without being able to, to be recognized as other labor force. So they were working in the fields 
under these conditions of abuse. Um, there were some decades that passed, and then there were poor African Americans and poor white people working, um, some of them as laborers and some of them as sharecroppers, uh, like both of them like being on this, this uh, scope, being also exploited. And now it's us, the new face of the of the farm worker community, uh, and it is in this time it is mostly made of workers from Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, and a few from different countries in Central and South America. And um, so the composition of uh, who the worker is has changed, but the conditions hasn't. So it's been it's been like that historically, and that's that's one aspect, like the historic aspect of it. Um, has been the labor force over the the course of, of history. Another aspect is how the agricultural industry exists, and um, the forces that have shaped it to what it is today. How how it existed in in the past decades, and um, from this angle you can see that. There were the um, the food um, fast food industries, the fast food industry that started to grow as local chain chains in different um, regions of the country, right? Like you can talk about McDonald's, you can talk about uh, Walmart, you can talk about like. Uh, supermarkets, fast food industry, food providers, like whoever is a big buyer today was not a big buyer 30, 40 years ago, right? So that's how um, when these these uh, food chains and uh, supermarkets started to grow, they started to choose those growers um who were able to produce more because they prefer to have a few contracts over like many contracts with many small farmers. So in the past in Florida, uh, they estimated that there were around like 200, over 200 growers that produced the tomatoes um, at that time. Today, uh, there are around 10 that control most of the production. And um, they produce more tomatoes or the same amount or more tomatoes than these 200 in the past. What happened is that with the growth of the big buyers of tomatoes, um, the industry was for to, um, how, how do I say it, to consolidate. The agricultural industry was for to, forced to consolidate in order to supply the demands of these big buyers. Those who were not able to supply were left behind and were forced to sell um, or to consolidate with another. Um, and that's why now we have less growers with a lot more power. It's been the, the agricultural industry, the conventional agricultural industry has become um, a corporate one that now produces uh, in Florida but all over the East Coast and are basically the same companies. Um, and that's the result of the growth of the big buyers on top. 
that end up creating the conditions that we are trying to change today. Can you talk a little bit about the kinds of crops that rely on agricultural workers being in the fields in large numbers? Um, we know that there's been a lot of mechanization that also occurred parallel to the time period that you were talking about, so that the need for labor in some kinds of crops, uh, wheat and corn come to mind, uh, dropped precipitously, whereas other crops, probably the fields that uh, the workers in, in your coalition are working on, uh, still require pretty high inputs of human labor. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, there are there are so so many um, uh, fruits fruits and vegetables that are produced in the state and all over the East Coast, but um, the main production here is tomatoes. After that is oranges. Uh, there's been there has been some mechanization in oranges, as you mentioned before, but um, not in tomatoes. And in tomatoes, is not going to happen anytime soon because it is a product that you need to be really careful with. Uh, there's And there's a lot of, you have to pick um, like several times and you need to, there's stakes, there's all sorts of things that would make it impossible. It's not like, like one time, um, thing that you're going to do. Like, for example, there's a tomato that's being picked by machine in uh, California and in other states in, in small, small um, a little bit small industries. And they use these tomatoes for ketchup. And I'm sure that if this was a way to save money, they would have already implemented it here. But uh, it is not possible. If you want to have a tomato that's um, in good shape, that you can store, and that you can use later on on your restaurant, on your store, then that's going to have to be picked by hand. And, um, yeah, the tomato industry is the biggest, um, and that's why we are focusing our energy in changing that industry. Uh, looking for a domino effect that would take place after that because the workers that are now picking oranges, if we change the tomatoes, they're not going to stay and pick oranges for the same price. It's going to have to, to – they're going to have to pay a little bit more too. And other industries like construction that doesn't have to do anything um, with agriculture – would have to change too because the same worker that works uh, building a house is the same worker that was picking tomatoes before. And the reason why this worker is building a house, um, working in, in this, this construction field, is because of the lack of um, protections, benefits, and, and uh, dignified wage. Um, if we change, if we turn that around in the tomato, then we are going to change uh, the conditions uh, across the board for many workers. Yeah, and I think it's important to, to note that, uh, as you said, if, if they could mechanize the harvesting of tomatoes, they would. So it's not being done this way because they want to generate employment for people who need jobs. 
it's being done this way because they have no other choice. And so I think in part that explains, um, you know, the, the less than ideal labor conditions that workers have seen through the years and that you've just described. So can you tell us about the formation of the CIW? You've already talked a little bit about that, but tell us about the campaigns that you've engaged in and the successes and failures that you've had through the years. Um, well, I think that um, in terms of what the campaign has been, um, it has evolved. And I think that every step on the way has been a sustain advancement um, in understanding and also in like, victories. At the beginning, the coalition was uh, here in Mokali, focusing on bringing the growers to the table to talk about the conditions of abuse, to talk about um, how, to, how to become, as workers, part of the industry how to become partners of the industry where we work every day, where we uh, many times live our lives. Um, so it started with this uh, general strike in 95, trying to get the attention of the growers in 97 again, 99 again. Um, and along the way, there were other actions like the March Against Violence uh, that I was mentioning before. Um, a hunger strike of 30 days by six members, a march of 234 miles from Fort Myers to the Fruit and Vegetable Association in Orlando, Florida. And um, all of this was um, to ask for, for one thing, just dialogue with the growers. They refused to sit at the table with us. Uh, there were some changes that happened but they they were not at all what we what we were looking for. Um, they were not enough. They were good, but not enough. The end of the violence uh, was one important victory in those years. Uh, but unfortunately, it happened only here um, because once you uh, finish the season here in Immokalee, you follow the season up to other states with the same companies. And the contractors um, treat you badly there. Whatever, there's no organization, uh, no coalition, they're going to try to take advantage of you. So instances of violence would continue to happen up north. So it was, it was one important victory, but not enough. The other victory was um, with the different actions that the coalition was doing. And... Um, but especially uh, hunger strike. It brought the attention um, of a lot of people, so it brought the community out of its invisibility, and it brought the attention of some important people in the country at a national level uh, for the first time to this struggle that the workers in this forgotten corner of Florida were living. So people started to wonder, like, what's going on there? Um, that brought the attention of former President Jimmy Carter, um, who basically uh, landed support and was asking the agricultural industry to change, was asking the agricultural industry to do the right thing. Um, the governor also uh, was paying attention to this 
and um, gave some some uh, intervention, and then step back. What what happened with this um, this pressure that was created because of the the actions and the climax being the the um, hunger strike was an increase in one company from five to ten cents. Uh, it was for Julio. And there was an increase in other companies that that were even thinking about like paying less instead of like keeping the the price of the bucket um, at the same level. Tell us about least. that, the the bucket price. Uh, could you explain that a little bit so people have some context? Uh, yeah. Well, um, what is what the prices has been um, is uh, forty to forty-five cents per bucket, uh, bucket of thirty-two pounds. Uh, that rate it means that a worker in a single day has to pick um, by piece has to pick two and a half tons of tomatoes in order to earn only the equivalent of the minimum wage. And um, it's been like that for 30 years. Um, in the past, you in the past you um, would go to pick tomatoes, and when the minimum wage was a little bit lower, you would earn a little bit more, right? Because you go to pick tomatoes by piece, same rate, 40 to 45 cents. Today. Um, there's um, an increase in the minimum wage, but that doesn't mean anything for a, a tomato picker because you get paid by the piece. And when you receive the same antiquated uh, system or antiquated payment, um, what it means for you when there's an increase in the minimum wage is that the contractors and the companies are going to expect from you to pick more so that you can... Um, Pick at least the minimum wage, but running in the fields. And if you can't, then you don't have a job. They are gonna they are gonna fire you. So it doesn't mean an increase for you. It means an increase of buckets that they would expect you to pick. Tell us what that um, tell us what that means. Two and a half tons in a day. Uh, that, that may seem like an abstract number to some people that are listening, but tell us uh, how many hours you have to work. Uh, tell us about the actual work as you're doing it. Um, you know, to pick two and a half tons a day, do you do you get any breaks? Do you get some time for lunch? Uh, tell us the implications of of that number. Okay, I'll tell you how it all starts in the morning. Um, you wake up at four, uh, or sometimes a little bit before. The reason for that is that when you receive this type of wage, the only way to save money is to live overcrowded. 90% of the population here are men, and that's not a coincidence. Um, the reason for that is that with that wage, it, it is impossible for you to have your family here with you. So you have to come here to be working alone, and then the, the benefit, if you want to call it that, of this is that you send whatever money you are able to save would represent a little bit more um, back in Mexico, Guatemala, or Haiti. 
um, but you are paying it with your sacrifice by being here alone and then sharing a single rundown trailer with eight or sometimes with 15 uh, other workers in a space uh, that's designed for four people. So that's, that's, that's why like, you have to wake up sometimes like 3, 3.30, 4 in the morning, depending on, on your situation in, in the housing just to be able to use uh to use uh the facilities uh in in your house like to brush your teeth and then start to cook um most of the workers have no time or space to to cook their food because with all of these people like whomever wakes up earlier would be using uh their stove for example so you wake up get ready and then go to the parking lot, uh, which is located in uh, downtown here in Mokali. This parking lot is um, the, it's pretty much in, in the middle of a nine square block area where most of the workers live, where most of the, of the trailer camps are located. The landowners know that the workers, because of the low wage, uh, have no choice but renting with them um, because with that with that um, with that wage you don't have the mobility you can afford to buy a car for example the main uh, mean of transportation is in bicycle or walking so you have to live within a walking distance from the place where you go to look for work every morning there's not a um, fixed job so you have to ask for a job once you arrive to this parking lot at 4 a.m., uh, you start to look for a job with different contractors. If you are young and strong, they're going to choose you. Like Many contractors will say, okay, you can go with us. Uh, but if you are old or if you are a woman, they would leave you um, to the end. Like if, only if they need somebody extra, they would take you with them. So... Then you go, you go in the bus. If you are lucky, you find a job. You go in the bus. They take you to the uh, company's property. Um, you arrive there, let's say, at 7 a.m. Then you have to wait there until the moist of the plant is gone because they don't want the tomatoes to be wet. But you have to be there. And all of this time, this waiting time, they don't pay you. They don't... Um, take into account your time, even though you are there for the company. And um, let's see, once once the plan gets dry, you start working, and you have to run if you want to be able to pick uh, the, at least to make the equivalent of the minimum wage. Some people ask us how much you make in a day. Like what's the average that you would make in a day? And uh, that's that's a question that's impossible to answer because of several reasons. Um, one of them is that every every field gets picked um, three times, sometimes four times. Every time, when it's the first time, there's there's a lot of a lot of tomatoes or a good amount of tomatoes. Second time would be a little bit less. Third time, less. Every time is less, but you have to. Still, like walk through, and um, 
every field, every quality of the field, of every field is different. The ability of every worker is different depending on the age, depending on how long have you been a tomato picker. The distance sometimes between a field to another field within the same company, um, the waiting time, the weather, there are so many, and the distance from, from the town to the field uh, sometimes uh, takes place too. So the closest estimate comes from the Department of Labor that says that in, in average, a worker made a, makes around um, 10 to $12,000 in a year, working all year round. And uh, that's without any type of benefits nor protections. And uh, that's actually, um, uh, as far as we know, uh, uh, including also in the math, including the wages of the supervisors, with all like including all the crew, which inflates a little bit the number. So we come back to Immokalee, um whenever we are done with the field, sometimes it can mean that you would work for eight hours. Um, sometimes it could mean that you're going to be in the field for 12 hours. Um, if you can, the time when you get in the bus to the time when you come back, like it's usually around 12 hours uh, in average and sometimes more. So our day, normal day of work goes from 8 to 14 and sometimes more um, hours a day. And many of those hours are not recognized. That is the end of the first part of my interview with Gerardo Reyes of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. There will be a part two of this interview that uh, will be published to our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, next week. So if you enjoyed this episode and if you're interested in learning more about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and their campaigns to end slavery, to improve the wages of farm workers in Florida and really throughout the country, then please stay tuned for next week's episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, where I will publish the second part of my interview with Gerardo Reyes. If you are a frequent listener of the Agro Innovations Podcast, then you probably know that we are on Twitter. You can find us at twitter.com slash agroinnovations, and uh, we release all the episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast via Twitter and include some other content updates throughout the course of the week. I think this is an area where our listeners can really have an impact on getting more listeners for the Agro Innovations Podcast by using Twitter. Uh, things can go viral pretty quickly on Twitter. So if you are a user of Twitter, and when you see those tweets come out about the Agro Innovations Podcast, I would greatly appreciate your help in getting the word out about this podcast get more people following uh, Agro Innovations on Twitter. And to help drive more traffic to our website, uh, you can retweet uh, the, the tweets for the Agro Innovations podcast. And I would greatly appreciate it if people would do that. I think that is one of the uh, best ways right now that you can support the Agro Innovations podcast is just to put some tweets out there, uh, you know, link to our podcast on blog pages, 
on forums where people are discussing these issues as well. That would all be a tremendous help. A frequent listener to the podcast by the name of Bryce has put together a transcription service for the Agro Innovations podcast that actually allows you to transcribe small parts of the podcast, uh, small little audio clips of the podcast at your leisure. So that is another way that you can contribute to the podcast and help to transcribe some of the episodes of the podcast. And I would ask Bryce to get on the webpage and link to the transcript for this episode of the podcast in the comment section of the Agro Innovations podcast. If you could do that, Bryce, I would greatly appreciate it. Now, Bryce also pointed out to me that he is um, has a login ID on Ning.com, and he has not been able to participate in the Global Swadeshi Network. It won't let him log in. So it's possible that some other people who are also members of the Ning Network and have not been able to, for whatever reason, participate in the Global Swadeshi Network and have just kind of you know, le- left it off and gotten frustrated and not participated. So I was not aware of that, and Bryce, thanks for pointing that out. Um, I have not yet found a, or really looked for, an alternative forum board where we can do some dialogue about the issues that we discuss in the Agro-Innovations podcast. So if anybody has any suggestions, uh, I'm definitely all ears for that. Let me finish by reminding you that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons attribution share-alike license. If you want to learn more about that, you can go to creativecommons.org. This is the Agro-Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>